Good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we want to look at verses 1 through 13 this morning as we embark upon our study of the book of James. This is part two on how to respond to the trials and storms of life. All of us have experienced trials in life. None of us are immune to them, including preachers. A number of years ago, I was entering into a small group in a diner. I led a men's group on Friday, and I received an infamous call. It was from my daughter's boyfriend. My daughter gave me permission to share this story with you. <clears throat> Her boyfriend said, Mr. Nimmer, I'm calling you because I don't want you to bury your daughter. Your daughter is addicted to heroin. I was in shock. The men's group knew it. I, had, I was pale, and I said to Louie, I said, do you need to take the small group? I got to go home. Called my wife. She came home, and we were both numb. My daughter denied it initially, but after grilling her that evening, we found it to be true. If there is a silver lining in this, she wasn't mainlining it. She was snorting it for about five months, so we caught it at the beginning, but I can tell you, heroin is a nasty drug. We both didn't know where this was going. I had heard stories, it happens to other families, it doesn't happen to preacher's kids. We raised our kids to follow the Lord, my wife homeschooled my daughters, but my one daughter made a series of bad decisions that led her to that. And so we told her, you cannot live at home unless you get clean, to which she eventually agreed to that. She flew out to Dallas. I had to fly her out there, drop her off. That was one of the hardest things. I went, I went into my car and cried my eyes out, called my mom, talked to her. Very difficult because at Calvary Chapel, we have a U-turn for Christ program. I would do Bible studies and a lot of heroin addicts would come in and out and and I knew instinctively that heroin was a nasty drug and it's hard to get off of. And we didn't know how long this was going to last. And I don't want to take you through all the sordid details, but um, we knew we couldn't stay in New Jersey. Philadelphia was nearby, about 30 minutes away. Philadelphia is known for its fentanyl. And I told Laura, I said, if we stay here, we're going to lose our daughter to the streets of Camden, New Jersey, or Philadelphia. She may even overdose on fentanyl and we'll lose her. And so my wife said, well, let's pray and ask the Lord to open a door for us. We loved the church we were in. It was a good church. I had been there almost 12 years. My elders were very supportive of what was going on. And, but we prayed, God, you see our situation. We need to get out of here. Two days later, I got a random phone call from John Hoppe, who is the pastor at Calvary Chapel where I just left. <clears throat> he planted that church in 1997 when I was in seminary. The church had grown to about 800 people. He called me out of the blue and said, Mike, what are the chances of getting you to come here? I need a teaching pastor. I need somebody to turn the church outward, et cetera, et cetera. We knew that God opened that door. So I made the difficult decision while I was flying on an airplane <clears throat> to leave the church that I was at and take this position. I called my parents in Miami, Florida, and I said, Mom, Dad, can you take my daughter, 
I named her. While we get the house packed, I don't want her coming back to New Jersey because she'll go right to the vomit. They said, sure. And so they were gracious. That actually was some of the best therapy for our daughter was being with her grandparents. And within two months, we left New Jersey and moved to South Carolina. My daughter moved in with us and she started off doing well, but started to waver, didn't use heroin. And then she came home and she dropped a bombshell on us. She said, I'm pregnant. And I said, Lord, this is like pouring salt in the wound. It's adding injury to insult. My wife was really upset about it. I wasn't happy about it, but I knew the Lord was going to use this. And by the way, this whole time, we're struggling. We're fasting, we're praying, we're crying out to God, a lot of tears, a lot of brokenness. This went on probably for over a year. Well, the daughter that my daughter had, or my grandchild, <clears throat> not only changed our life, but changed our daughter. She has been clean now for four years, never went back to the heroin, got back in church. And I only say that to say that we're not immune from difficulty. My daughter is going to church. She's in process. She's growing. And so we're thankful. Yesterday I was doing my quiet time in my office, not here but at home, and I have a picture of my three daughters, and I began to well up with tears. Thinking about how we could have lost her. And uh, I'm sorry, I normally don't cry in public. But it was just, I was thanking the Lord. We could have Mother's Day. We could have reflected on the memories of burying her. And so I say all that to say I wanted to be real with you guys. We've been through difficulty. Maybe you're going through something. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's you're lonely, you're struggling. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your marriage. You're in a loveless marriage and you really struggle. You want out. How do we respond to the difficulties of life? Because they're going to come. Well, James tells us here in chapter 1, if you remember, James identifies himself as a servant of Christ Jesus, not the half-brother of Jesus. And he's writing to Jewish Christians who were probably scattered during the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. Many of them were bereft of support. Many of them were beleaguered, harassed. They were away from their homeland. They didn't have financial support. And so they were going through difficulty. We know if you read the letter of James, chapter 2, the rich were taking them to court. According to chapter 5, the poor Jewish Christians were working and the rich were not paying their wages. And so they were suffering. And James writes this epistle not only to comfort the afflicted, but also to afflict the comfortable. James gives a strong one-two punch in this letter. All of us know this. In fact, Luther, Martin Luther, who is considered the father of the Protestant Reformation, he didn't like this letter. He called it a straw epistle because he had a hard time reconciling James' words in chapter 2, faith and works, with Romans chapter 4, that we're saved by faith alone. Obviously, those two texts reconcile, but 
Luther didn't like it, so he called it a straw epistle. But we know it's one of the inspired letters of the New Testament. And so James here tells us how to respond to the trials of life. And I'd like to tell you that I've applied these principles perfectly in my life. I haven't. It's always a process. You're always learning. But how are we to respond when we go through the winds of adversity in life? Let me review what we looked at last week, and then we'll pick up the remainder points this morning. First of all, I noted for you that we are to choose a joyful attitude. We are to choose a joyful attitude. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter trials of various kinds. And you know what? When I was going through that situation with my daughter, I didn't feel necessarily joy, but I had to make a decision that I was going to rejoice. Joy is not only an emotion, it is an attitude. It is a choice. It is a perspective. Secondly, James says we're to understand that trials have a purpose. And by the way, that's what causes us to rejoice is because we know that Trials have a purpose. They're not random. God works all things together for his glory and our good. And what are the three purposes that James says trials do? Number one, they test our faith. Number two, they strengthen our faith. And number three, they mature our faith. There's a third principle that we looked at last week, and that is this. When we go through the storms of life, we are to have a submissive will. James says, and let endurance have its perfect work. The operative word there is let. In other words, you're to cooperate with the trial. You're not to get mad at God and turn your back on God. You're not to resist God. Yes, we may wrestle with God. We may struggle with doubt. But ultimately, we are to let the trial do what it was designed to do. Let endurance have its perfect work. Well, James gives us a fourth principle for this morning on how to respond to the difficulties of life, and that is we are to pray for wisdom. We are to pray for wisdom. Notice what he says beginning in verse 5 as he writes to these harassed Jewish believers. He says, but any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James here tells us that when the winds of adversity blow in our life, one of the things that we are to do is we are to pray for wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom in the Old Testament, particularly the book of Proverbs, simply means to be skilled at godly living. Knowledge and wisdom are often contrasted in the book of Proverbs. Knowledge is information. Wisdom is taking that knowledge and applying it to everyday life. And so when you pray for wisdom, what you're doing is you're asking God, God, show me how to respond to this trial. Lord, give me insight into what is going on here. Lord, give me strength in the midst of the difficulty that I'm going through. Lord, show me how to live, because listen, we all have information. That's part of the challenge of the Christian life, is allowing our behavior to match the amount of knowledge that we have. And the, the more you close the gap between your knowledge and living, that's what biblical wisdom is. And so wisdom is seeing things from God's perspective. Because frankly, when you and I go through difficulties in life, sometimes we don't know how to respond. Sometimes we are so numb... We are so devastated, 
we are so broken, we can't pray. In fact, when I was going through that ordeal, and my wife was as well, there were times where I was so exhausted, I said, God, I'm going to claim Romans chapter 8 now, where the Spirit intercedes for us, because the Holy Spirit who lives on the inside of us knows what we're feeling and knows how to articulate that to the Father, and so I would often punt to the fact that, God, I, I don't even know what to say. I'm trusting in you to interpret my heart. God, I need wisdom, because sometimes... Things are not always black and white in life. I think you've figured that out if you've raised kids. You know that things are not always black and white. And there are sometimes decisions in life we have to make, and we say, Lord, I don't know what to do in this given situation. I need wisdom. For example, I was reading about a group of persecuted Christians in Iraq. They were being attacked by Muslim extremists. And here is what one of the gentlemen said as he looked back on that circumstance that they were going through. He said the following as he dealt with these extremist Muslims. Please pray for us. We are scared. Last night, they came in our church building and started breaking everything they saw. They took our pulpit down and removed the cross. Then they threw gasoline on it and burned everything. We were all hiding in the church basement, but we had to go out because of the smoke. As we started running out, they saw us and started shooting at us. Some did not make it, but those who did ran in all directions. Those who were captured were killed on the spot. Most of those who attended the meeting are Muslim background believers. And then he says this, please pray for us. We don't have a place to go, and we don't know what to do, end quote. Sometimes we don't know what to do, and we got to ask the Lord for wisdom. Lord, I need wisdom. I need perspective. I need your strength in the midst of this difficulty. But notice James gives a caveat here. He gives a proviso. And he says, if you want God's wisdom, you got to ask in faith. He says, because the one who doubts is like the waves of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. He says, that person is not going to receive wisdom from the Lord. Now, let me encourage you here, because all of us, when we've gone through difficulty, we've all wrestled with God in our faith. He's not talking about a Christian who is seeking God, who honestly wrestles with God. I believe, but help my unbelief. That's not the doubter here. Or, in certain translations, it says that person is a double-minded person. The double-minded person is the one who lacks faith. So here's the question. If James is not addressing the believer who has honest doubts, who is he addressing? He's addressing double-minded Christians. What's a double-minded Christian? A double-minded Christian is someone who has one foot in the world one foot in Christianity. They're not interested in following God. They only come to God when the bottom drops out and the roof caves in. But what happens is when they get delivered out of the problem, they go back to their old ways. That's the double-minded person that James is chiding here, saying that they will not receive wisdom from the Lord. You say, how do you know that? Because if you read James chapter 4, he calls them worldly Christians, and he says, you guys are committing spiritual adultery with the world, and he calls them in chapter 4 double-minded. So a double-minded Christian is not one who struggles with faith. It is someone who has one foot in the world, one foot in Christianity, and they're not really interested in following God. You know, when we lived in New Jersey, 
My wife and I did a trip up uh, the eastern coast, and we visited a number of states. I think we hit like five or six states in seven days. And I remember at one point, we were getting ready to cross one state to the other. You know, it said, welcome to Vermont. And I said to my wife very abruptly, I said, pull over. She said, why? Do you got to go to the bathroom? I said, no. I said, pull over. So I got out of the car. She got out with me. And I stood one foot in Massachusetts and one foot in Vermont. And I said, take the picture, sweetheart. In fact, we went to Branson, Missouri last year. If you've never been there, I highly recommend that vacation. I was in three states at one time. I had my foot in Kansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri. You know what James is saying? Don't have your foot in Massachusetts and Vermont. That's a double-minded Christian. Oh, Lord, please help me. I'm going through this difficulty. And you know what? You're living for the things of the world. That's the double-minded person that James is condemning here. Because listen, the fact of the matter is, all of us are going to wrestle with God. Remember I said in the second point, the purpose of trials are to test our faith. You know why God tests our faith? Not for him. God knows where we're at. God tests our faith to reveal where you and I are at spiritually. We think we're a lot more spiritual than we are, but when the bottom drops out and the roof caves in, you know what happens? We see the cracks in our foundation, do we not? So James says, pray for wisdom. You say, Mike, but I pray for wisdom, and I don't, I don't know how God's going to direct me. Well, listen, that's where you got to trust God for wisdom. Sometimes the Spirit of God will bring things to your mind. And there are times, like I said, you don't know what to pray, and you say, God, I am so exhausted, I'm so broken, I'm trusting in you, Romans chapter 8, to intercede for me according to the will of God. I've been there before. So James says, pray for wisdom. God, help me to be skilled in godly living. Help me to respond to this trial the way you want me to respond. And you say, but Mike, I sometimes don't. I complain, I grumble, I get critical, I get nasty with my family. You know what? The Bible says if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what? I have to confess my sins daily, especially when I'm going through difficulty because I don't always live up to what God wants. Well, there's another principle that James gives us here when dealing with the trials of life, and that is number five, we need to change our perspective. We need to change our perspective. Notice what he says in verse nine, but the brother of humble circumstances, now who would be the brother of humble circumstances? That would be the poor Jewish man that was bereft of support. He says, if you're in that situation, you're a brother of humble circumstances financially, I want you to glory in your high position. In other words, you may not be materially rich, you may be persecuted, but I want you to know that you have a high position in Jesus Christ. In other words, he's telling them, don't focus in on the fact that you lack material possessions, focus in on the fact that you have a high position spiritually. In other words, you're in Christ and you are spiritually rich, even though you're not materially rich. Now, in America, that is hard for us to imagine. We can't compute with that. If God allowed America to go under, and America is going to eventually bankrupt itself, you guys know this, it's coming. At some point, a lot of what we have, we may not have anymore. And you know what? Most of us would probably say, God, what do we do wrong? Why, why are you upset with me? God's not upset. God doesn't promise material wealth. He's telling them, 
Focus on your high position. But then he has a word for the rich who are persecuting these Jewish Christians. He says in verse 10, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. In other words, the rich person ought to acknowledge that they are spiritually bankrupt and they need to humble themselves in order for God to exalt them. So he's addressing the rich. In fact, if you read chapter 5, James gives a scathing diatribe against the rich. And again, he's not condemning wealth in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with wealth. But listen, when you and I love wealth above God, that's where it becomes a problem. So he says to them, change your perspective. Even though you're in humble circumstances, I want you to have the perspective that you have a high position, and if you're a rich person that doesn't follow God, he says, I want you to change your perspective because in the end, your wealth is not going to last. Because look what he says to the wicked rich. He says in verse 10, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. And then he says this to the rich in verse 11, for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flowers fall off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And you know what he's telling them? He's saying, look, guys, I know you're bereft of support. I know you don't have the world's goods, but I want you to have the perspective that you have a high position in Jesus Christ. You are one with Christ. You are the light of the world. You are a child of God. You are a joint heir of Jesus Christ. You're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ during the millennial kingdom. He's saying wealth is temporary. It's not going to last. But what you do for Jesus will last eternally. So he's trying to jolt them to get them to have that perspective. Because listen, when you and I go through suffering, one of the things that we all battle with is we lose perspective. We lose perspective. We struggle. Most of you have heard of the Titanic. Maybe you saw the movie Titanic. I've been to the exhibit when we went to Branson, Missouri. They actually have a whole exhibit thing of the Titanic. It's pretty fascinating. Did you know that when the Titanic was sinking, a lot of the materially wealthy people on that boat, you know what they were doing? They were trying to sell their jewelry for fruit. They were hawking their jewelry for fruit. You want to know why? Because they realized that as the boat was sinking, their wealth didn't matter at that point. The only thing that mattered was survival. See, their perspective changed relative to their circumstance. And so you and I need to change our perspective. And you know what? The best way to do that is you got to get in the Word of God. Because when I'm going through trials, God, why are you allowing this? What, what's going on, God? And listen, some people mark this. They go through trials the rest of their life. There are some trials that you will not get rid of in this life. There are people that have physical maladies. They've asked God to heal them, and God has said no, and they live with that the rest of their life. You say, well, how do I change my perspective? Because my perspective is earthly, unspiritual, complaining. The best way to do that is get in the Word, pray, and be in fellowship. Those three things help change your perspective. You'll notice up on the screen a six or a nine. Which one is it? Is it a six or it is a nine? How many say six? How many you don't care? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> or is it a nine? 
Ah, it's your perspective. And that's why we have to have that eternal perspective. Listen to what Paul said. I love his, I love his verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says, therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And then notice what he says in verse 17, great verse, for our light and momentary troubles. Listen, that is an eternal perspective. Our struggles are light and momentary. They are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is what? Eternal. In other words, Paul says, look, this life is temporary. We struggle. But he says we focus on the eternal, not the temporal. Why? Because trials in life are momentary and light. Listen, how many of you look back on your life and you go, where did the time go? I just turned 70 last week. No, I'm just kidding. I wanted to wake you all up. I just turned 56 and I go, where did the time go? See, life is ephemeral. It's brief. It's short. And we got to have that eternal perspective. So maybe you need a perspective change this morning. Maybe you need to change your outlook. And the best way is to get into the scripture. Well, there's a sixth principle that James gives us here in dealing with the trials of life. And that is this, anticipate your reward. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, that is, passes the test, he will receive, here it is, the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Notice he says here that you and I are going to get a reward when we persevere and we pass the test. There is a reward for those who hang in there. Speaking of perseverance, I mentioned to you last week I was watching the eulogy of Charles Stanley. Again, if you haven't seen it, put it on YouTube. His associate pastor was talking about Charles Stanley's divorce. He didn't get into the details, but he said, as many of you know, Charles Stanley went through a divorce. He blocked it, but his wife Anna went through with it. And it was very difficult for Charles. There was no infidelity that went on. There's a lot of rumors. Charles and his son Andy had a falling out at the beginning, but they rectified their relationship. But as the associate pastor was talking about Charles Stanley and his divorce, he said Charles would get up in the morning, get dressed to go to church, to preach to millions of people. And he knew everyone knew his business. You know, a lot of us want to be private when we're hurting. Imagine the whole world knows your business. And he said what kept Charles Stanley persevering in the trial and caused him not to quit, and this is what shocked me. He said on the way to church, Charles Stanley would listen to the music of Jimmy Swaggart. Jimmy Swaggart was that preacher in the 80s that had a bad fall with prostitutes. And he said what encouraged Charles was the redemption and forgiveness that Jimmy Swaggart had experienced. And a lot of people don't know that Jimmy Swaggart has sung a lot of songs. His son, Donnie, has taken over for him in a church in Louisiana. And then the associate pastor looked and said, 
Jimmy Swaggart was sitting in the audience and he said, sir, I want you to know the reason why Charles Stanley was still in the pulpit is because of you. And everybody stood up and clapped. See, we all have to persevere in trials. You know what? And God uses a lot of things to help us persevere. But notice the reward. He says, you will get the crown of life. Now, are these literal crowns? Some theologians say yes. Revelation 4 says we're going to cast our crowns before the Lord. There's a music group called Casting Crowns. I believe that they are a metaphor for reward. I could be wrong. Do you remember as a kid those Burger King crowns? I used to get them all the time. Well, I believe it's a metaphor for reward. We're all going to be rewarded in eternity. And your rewards are going to be commensurate with your faithfulness here and now. And when you go through suffering for the cause of Christ, and you don't throw in the towel, you don't quit, you persevere, James says you will receive the crown of life which will not fade away. Material possessions will not last, but you will get the crown of life. Now, we're all going to be rewarded in heaven. What that looks like, I don't know all the details. But I like to use this analogy. We're all going to have cups in heaven. All of our cups will be filled, but some people's cups will be bigger than others. Billy Graham will have a bigger cup than Mike Nimmer. Because Billy Graham was better? No. Because of the scope of his ministry and his faithfulness. Now, there will not be jealousy in heaven over reward. There will not be competition, but we're going to be rewarded based on our faithfulness here and now. And James says, when you're going through difficulty, focus in on the reward. And it comes back to what I said in the previous point. We have to have the eternal perspective. But you know what happens in America? We are so materialistic in this country. We are so focused on our materialism and our happiness and our pleasure that we forget the then and there, and we're so focused on the here and now. We're all bound to some degree. That's why it's so critical. We're in the Word, we're in prayer, we're in church, and we surrender to the Lordship of Christ on a daily basis. Why? Because the world will squeeze you into its mold. It's inevitable if you're not in the Word of God. And so focus in on your reward. You know, there's one gentleman that I admire. His name is Richard Wombrand. Richard and Sabina are the ones that started Voice of the Martyrs. He was in communist Europe, and he was persecuted for his faith. He stood for Christ, and they threw him in jail. He was in solitary confinement for years. They put him in a vault that was underground. They said when the guards would walk, they would wear felt under their shoes. You couldn't hear anything. He was there for years. He said he had to preach sermons to himself in order to not go crazy. There was a guy on the other side, they would tap. I think, and I may be wrong on this, he may have been in there for three to five years. Well, they let him out, and he preached again. They threw him back in. They beat him. And you know what? He started Voice of the Martyrs, wonderful ministry to help persecuted Christians around the world. They give a free magazine. You know what? Richard Wombrand, not because he's worthy, not because his wife is worthy, 
But they will be in the front of the line, and Mike Nimmer will be in the back of the line. You know why? Because they have suffered far more than I probably will ever suffer in this life. And you know what? He persevered, and therefore him and his wife will receive the crown of life. Not because they're worthy of it, but because of their faithfulness. How about you? Are you tempted to quit? Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. Satan may assail you. He may attack you with doubts, but keep persevering and you will receive the crown of life. Well, there's one final principle that James gives us here as we look at how to respond to the winds of adversity, and that is this. Don't blame God. Don't blame God. Notice, if you will, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. You say, time out, Mike. Verse 13 shifts. It's talking about temptation, not trials. And next week, we're going to look at how to respond to temptation, because James is going to tell us how. You say, yeah, but he's talking about temptation. He's not talking about trials. Here's what's interesting. In verse 2, James says this, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter trials of various kinds. That word trials in the Greek is the word parasmas, and it means a test. If you drop down to verse 13, the verse that I just read, do not blame God when you are tempted. The word tempted in the Greek is the word parasmas. So verse 2, the word trials is parasmas. In verse 13, the word temptation is parasmas. You say, same Greek word. What is James saying? Simply this, trials become temptations. Trials turn into temptations to deny God, to curse God, to grumble, to complain. Trials happen on the outside, and then what happens is we internalize them. And notice what he says here. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now, the Greek preposition here is very interesting because it says this. Don't blame God, watch this, either directly or indirectly when you go through a trial and it turns into a temptation. Don't blame God directly or indirectly. Indirectly. God, you knew from the time I was seven, I had same-sex attraction. If you didn't make me this way, I wouldn't have gone into the homosexual lifestyle. That's blaming God indirectly. God, you're the one who allowed me to be born in the inner city. I grew up in poverty. Why would you expect me not to turn to crime, to drug dealing? Look at the circumstance that I grew up, grew up in, and you're to blame. James says, don't blame God directly or indirectly when you're going through a difficulty. Because he's going to say, only good things come from God. My roommate in college, I went to Samford University, Birmingham, Alabama. I was recruited for football. He was my football buddy. Mark was a big guy. Um, he was raised in Fort Myers, Florida. I was raised in Miami. And so... He was kind of a spiritual example to me when I was waffling in my walk with God. I was that double-minded Christian at that time, and he was an example to me. And when I committed my life to Christ, he shared a story with me about his pastor in Fort Myers. His pastor had a daughter, and 
through his daughter, he had a grandson who was seven or eight years old. And one day, his daughter and his grandson were in their vehicle, and they were in a residential area, and some kids that were not paying attention drove through the stop sign, hit his daughter's car, and killed his eight-year-old grandson instantly. He got called to the scene of the accident, and he was bitterly weeping, as all of us would be. And he said, you know, Mike, I sat there as he's sitting on the curb crying his eyes out. And he said, here's what he said to me. I refuse to doubt God. I refuse to doubt God. See, the trial had become a temptation. He knew that. And if we're all honest, many times we give in to the temptation. We question God. We don't have perfect faith. We wrestle. We struggle. And sometimes we can walk away from God. That's it. I'm done going to church. We get passive aggressive. I'm not reading the Bible. I'm not praying. I'm not tithing. Blah, 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 blah. We all wrestle with that. Some people have greater faith than others. I'm not saying all Christians respond that way, but we're all tempted to. And James says, don't blame God for your temptations because temptation is a solicitation to evil. That comes from the evil one. It does not come from God who is holy. So are you going through any difficulty this morning? What is it? You say, Mike, things are hunky-dory for me. Great. You know what James chapter 5 says? Are things going good? He says, praise the Lord. If things are going good in your life, thank God. Praise Him for it. You don't need to feel guilty. On the other hand, be prepared because sometimes trials come into our life unexpectedly. How does, how does God want us to respond? James gives us several ways. First of all, choose a joyful attitude. Secondly, understand that your trials have a purpose. Thirdly, cultivate a submissive will. Fourthly, pray for wisdom. Fifthly, change your perspective. Sixth, anticipate your reward. And then finally, don't blame God. And you know what else we need? We need the body of Christ. We need one another. And if you're going through something this morning... We want to pray for you. We want to be here for you. We want to lift you up in prayer. Sometimes I don't have the answers. You know what? There are many times in the ministry where I've counseled people, and the only answer that I could give them is, you have to take this to the cross, and you have to take it to Jesus Christ because he's the only one that can either deliver you out of it or sustain you in it. There is not always a push-pull, click-click solution to the trials of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. I pray, Father, that you would give us the grace, Father. We, we struggle. We fail. And we don't always respond the way we should. But I pray that, Father, these principles that we took out of James would, Father, ever be before us. Give us grace. I pray this morning if there's someone here that's going through a difficulty in their marriage or their job, or maybe it's their health, maybe it's their finances. Maybe it's a wayward child that has not come back or the loss of a child. God, I pray for strength. And your word says that when we are weak, you are strong. So I pray for those this morning that are hurting. You know their heart. You know where they're at. Give them strength. Give them perspective. Give them encouragement. I pray, Lord, for our country. 
Our country is headed to hell in a handbasket. God, I pray for revival. I pray for our president, our leaders, that you would move in our nation. Pour out your spirit on this country, Lord, that has lost perspective of you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters overseas that are persecuted. Father, they are going through far more than I ever will go through. I pray, Lord God, that you would give them grace, give them wisdom, give them perseverance, give them hope, and I pray that the gospel would go forth as the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Father, we thank you this morning in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we worship God. And remember, as you go out this week, God's going to open up doors for you. If you have the mind of Christ, he will open up opportunities to minister. Let's be the salt and light that God wants us to be. Yesterday, I was at the Polaris Mall, never been there, and uh, I bought this Miami Dolphins thing that lights up. It was real neat, and uh, the guy was a Muslim, and I said, hey, what's your name? And he said, my name's Muhammad. And I said, let me ask you a question. Where are you going to go when you die? And so we got into this dialogue, and I said, the difference between Christianity and Islam is we have a basis for forgiveness. I said, you have no assurance that your sins will be forgiven. Because I say to Muslims, are you a practicing Muslim? Because if you're not, it's hellfire, according to Muslim theology. And I said, Jesus offers forgiveness. And so listen, God will bring people into your path. Share Christ. Be bold. Let's worship together.